Amen. So there's a city an hour or so north of Amman, Jordan, called Jerash. I've been fortunate enough to go to this city two times, and like so many cities in that that corner of the world, you are struck every time by the dichotomy, the stark dichotomy between old and new. You arrive in Jerash by a main road, a four-lane highway, and on one side of the road is a modern city. Grocery stores, apartments, cars, hustle-bustle, people going to and fro, but on the exact opposite side of that road is this vast archaeological site containing near-perfectly preserved Roman ruins. So well preserved that some archaeologists have uh, taken to calling Jerash the Pompeii of the East. You see, at one point in Rome's history, Jerash was a fairly major outpost of the Roman Empire, situated as it was on a critical north-south trade route. And so the, the Romans built built Jerash to exemplify the, the greatness of their empire. And sure enough, when you visit to this day, you cannot help but take in the scale of that greatness. Typically, you enter the site from the south, and the first thing you encounter and, in fact, walk through is this, this massive archway, an archway that feels like it belongs more in a modern-day Paris or New York or maybe an attraction in Las Vegas. But, but instead, what you're walking through is this archway that was built in 200 CE, an archway built to, to mark the visit of the Roman Emperor Hadrian. And then you, you continue walking through the city, heading north along that north-south Axis, and you're, you're walking on these ancient stones, these massive stones that are the very stones that comprise the road that people walked 2,000 years ago. If you're not careful, your, your foot can slip into the groove that has been left from all of those chariots and wagons that one, one, at one time made their way up and down that road. There, there are these colonnades and these Roman columns. There's theaters, not one but two. There's a massive fountain that you can gather around and imagine. Imagine all the people who would gather in the ancient world around it as well for water and for gossip. At the far north end, there are these enormous stone steps. You practically have to climb up them with your hands and feet, and at the top of these steps is the footprint, the, the ruins of this absolutely massive temple, a temple that was built at the time for the Roman gods. Both times I have visited Jerash, the same thought occurs to me. I mean, you cannot help but be in the midst of this site and imagine yourself 
in the shoes or I guess the sandals of, of an ancient Roman citizen. When that city was fully built up and bustling in the same way that the modern city on the other side of the road is today, you can't help but imagine yourself standing there at the foot of that temple looking out on all all of this magnificent construction and thinking to yourself, how could something as great as this ever not be? You know, as I read this story from Luke's gospel today, I wondered if perhaps the disciples had Jerash in mind. It's not too far-fetched. If you go back one chapter to Luke chapter 8, there's that story that originates from Mark's gospel where, where Jesus takes the disciples across the Sea of Galilee to the land of the Gerasenes. Gerasene, Gerash. There's some debate among scholars about how exactly you should translate it. But depending on how far inland they went, when they landed on the other side, it seems plausible that they at least may have taken in from a distance Jerash, or perhaps one of the other Roman colonies in that province. Perhaps they took in the sights of that temple and of those colonnades and they were reminded of their own visits to either that Roman city or similar ones. Maybe they, they imagined as they stood there looking on about the last time they had stood there at the foot of one of those massive Roman temples. And they were wondering to themselves, Lord, Lord, who amongst us will be powerful like this? Who amongst us will be honored the way Hadrian is honored with that beautiful arch? Who amongst us will be famous? You know, one of the most amazing things I remember uh, in Jerash is the fact that the Romans had figured out a way to have underground sewage and plumbing in the homes. Maybe the disciples were wondering to themselves, who among us will be so great that we will have indoor plumbing in our homes? Who amongst us will have a big office, a fat paycheck, a portrait on the wall? Who amongst us will be great? And Jesus' response It shouldn't have been shocking to them because he had been saying it all along, but no doubt it shocked them like it may shock us. Jesus' response is to bring them near and to say to them, do you see this little child? Whoever welcomes this little child welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For greatness in God's kingdom, Jesus continued, is the one who is least among you. Blessed are the meek. Of all the, of all the beatitudes, rather, this beatitude may be the most upside down. This beatitude may be the most countercultural. 
And as evidence of that, of course, we need look no further than this election season that we are all in. I've been reading the headlines, I've been watching the debates, and I have yet to hear a single candidate of either party, a single candidate running for any office for that matter, from board of county commissioners on up. I, I have yet to hear a single candidate lay out their plan for how they will make America meek again. Instead, all we hear from Democrats and Republicans alike is their plan to make us strong, to make us wealthy, to make us honorable on the world stage. Now listen, don't confuse meekness with weakness. Meekness does not equal weakness. In fact, meekness, Jesus is trying to teach us, requires tremendous strength. The strength to do what is right. To take in the view from the bottom, to see the world through the eyes of a child. Meekness requires us to have the strength to speak up for the vulnerable, to feed the hungry, to care for the sick. It requires us to have the strength to refuse to return violence for violence and to persevere when people call us crazy for living the way we do. Meekness, in other words, requires tremendous strength to follow the example of Jesus Christ. History is replete with examples of the meek. Yes, it's Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Rosa Parks and MLK and Desmond Tutu, but it's also the grandmother who runs a free daycare out of her living room for all those children on her street whose parents are working two or three jobs to make ends meet. It's also the, the teacher who packs an extra sandwich every day in their own lunchbox in order to slip into the backpack of that student they know is not going home to dinner. It's also the wealthy businessman who quietly pulls his pastor aside and tells her to call on him anytime there's a need in their church that the church may not be able to meet. Call on me, and I'll help however I can. It is the meek Jesus wants us to realize, not the mighty, who ultimately shape the world. When you go to Jerash, off that main drive, that colonnade with all the pillars, there are scattered about dusty paths that lead you to some of the lesser known archeological sites. And one of those paths 
adjacent to that massive temple, it leads you to the footprint of what was once a small church. A church called the Church of St. Cosmos and Damien. Legend has it that Cosmos and Damien were twin brothers, physicians, who were compelled by their faith in Jesus Christ to practice medicine amongst the poor without charging fees. They were eventually put to death for their faith during a time of persecution. But ever since, they have been known as the moneyless holy ones. It's an amazing thing to stand there. The church itself is sort of down in a pit of sorts, so you stand up above it, and you look down on it. And it's an amazing thing to stand there in that spot, because off to your right is the church, and off to your left is that that massive temple. And you stand there and cannot help but think about how the, the mighty, prosperous, the great city and empire that that temple represents, it's gone. But the gospel, the gospel that was proclaimed down in that pit, down on those beautiful mosaic floors which are intact to this day. The gospel which proclaimed that true blessing is found in meekness. That true blessing is found not in the race up the ladder, but rather in the scramble to the bottom, the scramble to welcome the statusless, the powerless, moneyless holy ones. The gospel that was proclaimed in that place 2,000 years ago that called upon all who heard to welcome the child. You can't help but stand there and shake your head as you think about the fact that Rome is gone. But the gospel, that gospel, it still stands. And suddenly, as you stand in that spot, you understand what Jesus must have been trying to say when he said to all those followers long ago in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Friends, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, in the name of that gospel. Amen.